last several weeks. So we'll, we're going to look at chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to just go um, in a great deal of depth as far as we can go in that passage. I don't know if anyone had a chance to read through that this past week. Some of you did. And so um, we'll go into a little deeper look at it. Let's start off with prayer. Any special prayer requests tonight that you know about? Families in need? That's right, yeah. Okay. Anyone else? We continue to pray for Wayne that he'll continue to get better. He's no better looking than he ever was, but we're praying for better health. Okay, so he's, you're getting old, you know that? That's the problem. <laughs> Things wearing out. Remember that in prayer? Other needs that people know about? Oh, bless her heart. Yeah, that's a tough thing. So let's remember that family in prayer. All right, well, yes. Who is? Seth, okay. Let's pray for these families then. Okay. All right. Well, those of you who know these folks, you remember them specifically in prayer, and the rest of us will join in with you. And let's just ask God to touch them and to be with us in this. time we have together tonight. Father, we just come and we bring every one of these needs to you, Lord. Those who are having physical illness, those who have lost loved ones, those who are going through challenging times. Father, we just lift all of these things up to you. We know that we have confidence that we can come to you and we can bring our needs to you. It doesn't matter how big they are, how small they are, how distant they are, how close they are to us. We have a confidence that we have a great high priest who feels what we feel and has compassion and is able to do above and beyond anything we can ask or think. So for those who need healing, we pray for healing, Father. For those who need comfort and direction, we pray for that. Whatever those needs are, Father, you know them better than we do. We just ask that you'll guide and direct them. For this one who needs traveling mercies, Father, we pray that you'll protect them and watch over them. Many of us in this room understand what it means to be traveling and just to know that God is protecting us, keeping us from harm. We just thank you for that. We pray that this time of the year, Father, that the gospel of Christ, that the message that God loves us and wants a relationship with us will be broadcast throughout the whole world in spite of all the nonsense that's going on, all the conflicts, all the wars, all the pressure, that Christmas will be a time when the message of Christ's birth will go out over the, over the news, over the radio, the TV, the internet, word of, word of mouth, one-on-one, that the message of Christ will be presented. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Bless our time together tonight. Help it to be productive. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. I got a little bit of a raspy voice tonight.
<clears throat> I think it's just the weather, the kind of weather it is. It's, it's like summer out there, isn't it? Good grief. I'm like, I started to get my motorcycle out today, which I don't ride it very often because my wife doesn't allow that too much. I get to go to Ash Flat from Evening Shade, then I call. I'm in Ash Flat. If she's real nice to me, she'll let me go to Hardy and get a cup of coffee. And then I have to call. I'm in Hardy. And then there's a reason for it. Yes, there is. Which we were, this is not about this class. You didn't, if you're going to come in my class, you don't need to be interrupting me. <clears throat> um, I mentioned last week, just for, for fun anyway, the little Christmas book we're doing. We're doing a series of these books. For children, they're storybooks, uh, bedtime storybooks for children. This is uh, Milo's First Christmas. It's about this little mischievous cat who gets into all kinds of trouble, knocks over the Christmas tree, and then uh, his friend, Grandfather Mouse, helps him put the Christmas tree back together because Milo doesn't know what the meaning of Christmas is. So they use the ornaments of the tree to put them back on while the mouse tells him the story of Jesus' birth. And so it's a little Christmas story. Lynette will be going around to a bunch of schools next week doing Christmas, uh, doing uh, book readings with kids around uh, Sharp County. So be in prayer with her because it might be the first time some of these kids ever hear uh, the, the real story of Christmas about the birth of Christ and what it means. And then the next book hopefully coming out is Easter, right? The Easter, Easter series. And then... Um, when the kids, when it's about time to get out of school, there's a book coming out about uh, summer break, what, you know, what kids would do on summer break. And so, and each one will have, you know, the gospel message in it in, in some respect. So it's kind of a fun project. <laughs> most of, it's like 180 degrees from my life because most all of my work um, is in, a, in an academic environment. So for her to pull me into this children's book, so we're writing the book, and I'm like, uh, no, that's not the way to say that. And she goes, it's, you're not talking to the people you talk to. We're talking to children. So leave those words out of there. So anyway, it's been a fun project, and we're still married, so we're doing good. We're doing well. All right, well, so um, we're going to do an exegesis on chapter 3. So we're going to put into to play all of these sort of things that we've been uh, that we've been working on. Let's go to the next slide, Becky. And um, so, to set this up, backing up in into Colossians, here's kind of where we are. You have Paul saying, "There's the old life controlled by the unregenerate mind and evil desires of the flesh," which means you're dead to sin. You're you're dead in sin. Spiritually, you're not alive. Physically, you are. Christians have a new life in Christ. So what we were talking about the last couple of weeks is there's, if you draw a circle, if you draw two circles, first you're living here, you're dead in your sins. And then when you accept Christ through this miracle of regeneration, I don't, Miss Ruth will explain the whole regeneration thing to you right after class because I can't explain it. I'm not sure how it happens or, or, or what happens to us, but we're born spiritually. It's kind of like that guy that Jesus, uh, when the Pharisees called him, they said, what happened to you? He said, I don't know what happened. I was blind, 
and now I can see. That's the difference. They didn't have any, they didn't, they didn't know how to deal with him. He said, look, I was blind. You know I was blind. But now I can see what happened. This guy, Jesus, touched me. He healed me. So it's very difficult to explain to someone who is dead spiritually that you're alive spiritually and what it means to be alive spiritually, isn't it? Because according to Scripture, when we're, when we're in this position here, we have blinders on. We can't see spiritual things. We know they're there, but we can't fully grasp them. You don't fully understand it. It's kind of like sometimes with our business when Lynette's going through finances with me and she's trying to explain accounting practices. And I'm like, you know, first of all, I don't want to know. And secondly, that makes absolutely no sense. That's kind of how it is. Spiritually, when you're dead, you can't see it. You don't understand it. So Paul's saying, now that you're over here in this new reality, you're in Christ, you're living in a new reality, things need to be different. So in chapter 3, what we're going to look at is this transition in Christo, being transformed. We're not changed all at once. Not all of us has changed all at once. All of our passions, all of our thoughts, all of our ideas all of our feelings, not everything happens at one time as a Christian. It's a process of growth and development and transformation over time. Amen? It doesn't happen all at once. I've had couples come to me who are having marital difficulties. And, you know, they would be in counseling. For years I did lots of counseling. And people would come. And they, we would... We would talk through what's going on, and then we would pray together, and then they'd come back, and they'd go, well, nothing happened. You think God's just going to solve the whole thing immediately, but he doesn't. He changes us from the inside out. So it's a slow, sometimes rather painful process of changing us from the inside out, making us into what he wants us to be, conforming us, molding us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. And this is where non-Christians have trouble with us. They really do. Because in the media and the mindset is that Christians somehow think that they're perfect. I've been a Christian for quite a while. I have never met a single person that really thought they were perfect. But somehow the the non-believers... Get this idea that, well, if you're a Christian, you have to be perfect. In your mind, you think, well, you know, I'm a Christian, and I'm telling you, I'm way far not from perfect. I'm not where I need to be, but I'm sure not where I used to be. Amen? I used to be on this side, and now I'm over here. So I may have my issues, but I'm not where I used to be. I'm not dead in my sins. I'm alive in Christ. So, then let's go, let's dive in and see what we can do with this. And if I lose you along the way, just stop me and interrupt me. So, the first thing that happens, verse 1, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So, let's just take, we're going to take piece by piece, and we're going to take a closer look at it. So let's start off with the word since. Now, I'm reading from an NIV. NIV is what's on the, on the next slide, Becky. 
verse 1. Oh, I'm sorry. There's the five things. Just go on past that. We'll, I'm going to do like Pastor Chris. I'm just going to skip over stuff. You see him up here on Sunday. He's got his little thing, and he goes, nah, 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 we're not doing that. We're not doing that today. I was teasing him earlier. If he says something wrong, Becky has a little thing that comes up and goes, we don't believe that. <laughs> That's not right. So, All right. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So let's start out real slow. The word since. This in Greek is a conditional clause which assumes that there's a reality. So it's a conditional clause. Since something happened in the past, there's been an event that took place. That's what a conditional clause is. Since something happened, since this happened, in some translations, depending on what you're looking at, it'll say, if then. If then you've been raised with Christ. That's in the King James. If then... If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, which Christ setteth on the right hand of God. So it's assuming that in their language, not ours, it's different in ours, but it's assuming in their language that an event took place at some point in history and there's a reality associated with that event that continues even to now. So if, you're, if you used to be over here in this old reality where you're dead spiritually, you're dead in your sins, and the judgment of God is standing over you, and now you've moved over into a new reality, and you're living in Christ, since this is your new place of residence. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Since this is where you live now, you don't live there anymore. You live here. This is your reality. A good example of this, Lynette and I, we we lived in Georgia for almost 30 years, And the house that we had in Georgia was 6,300 square feet. And that doesn't include all the other stuff that it had. So you had these two people, these two old folks, living in this big house. It had three stories. We didn't even go into it most of the time. We didn't even know what was in there. And today, we live in a little house that is one half of one floor. Now, you want to challenge your marriage. Let me tell you something. Move into a small space. (laughs) So we were living in this big house that we didn't need. We didn't want it. But the Lord brought someone along. A lady came up one day and said, look, I've got cash, and I believe God wants me to buy this house. And let me tell you, I didn't even pray. I just said, the Lord spoke to me too. This is your house. (laughs) Just put the cash in the envelope. No, I'm just kidding. It worked out for both of us. We didn't need that house. I don't even know how we wind up with it. But my point is, we used to live in that reality of this house where you had all the space in the world you needed, and now we live in a little tiny space. And so we're always bumping into each other in this little house that we live in, and we're always looking and going, wow, there are times when we really could use that extra space like when I'm snoring watching football. Why is it with men, if the football game's on, you're sleeping like a baby or NASCAR or something, and if your wife turns off the TV, you wake up? Because you were sleeping fine. And so I'm watching the football game, and she turns it off, and then I wake up. Now, if I had my own room, I could just sleep all day, and they're watching football games. Pray for me. 
since something, since you moved out of that house into this house, since you moved out, now the idea of a house or a resident has value to this scripture, and you'll see in a minute. So now we moved, since that happened, he says, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts, your cardia. Now here's the challenge for English folks. What Jews and what people of the first century thought about with the idea of the cardia is not the same thing we think about. So the first thing we think about with our heart is the physical heart, our cardiac system. We're thinking about, you know, the heart, maybe love, Valentine's Day, we give away cards. That's not what they were thinking about. That would be a foreign thing to them. What they're thinking about of in the heart is the heart is the seat of emotion. The heart is the seat of all emotions. That's this actually for a Jew particularly and for a Greek on top of that. The heart is the center of who a person is. In today's world, it, some of my classes I teach on emotional intelligence. We have a lot of good scientific research about the emotional side of human behavior. We're emotional people. And a, a medical researcher a number of years, it's been about 34 years ago now, a guy named Michael Goldman wrote a book called Emotional IQ May Be More Important Than IQ. So how smart you are may not be the measure of success. How emotionally smart you are might be the measure of your success in marriage and raising kids and your job, whatever career it is, and so on. So Daniel Goldman kind of turned it upside down, and he said, you know what? I know a lot of really smart people intellectually who can't get along in life because they don't have the emotional intelligence that it takes to survive. Now, I'll give you a definition of emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is the ability to manage your emotions while managing the emotions of others. That makes sense? So emotional intelligence is that it's the quotient, if we measure you, how well do you manage your emotions while at the same time managing the emotions, the emotions of others? So it's a real kind of little tricky thing, but the idea is we're very emotional people. A lot of what we do throughout the day has to do with our emotions. And for these people, it's the center of everything you are. It's your, what, you're, what you're devoted to has to do with your cardio, what, what you're compassionate about, what you uh, are interested in. It all comes from that center point of the cardia, of the heart. So go back and let's look at it again. He says, since you're living in a new reality and you've been raised with Christ, that's that new reality, and you're going to see above and below here. Paul's kind of going to do the above and below thing. So since you've been raised with Christ, set your center of your life. Set the center of your existence. Set that on things above, not on things below. Because you've been raised with Christ. You've been put in another position. And this is where we could talk about positional versus practical sanctification. Now, Here's something to notice about that. Paul is asking us to do it. 
God has already done what God has done. You see that? He already did what he did. He died on the cross. He gave his life for us. He made a way for us to have a relationship with the Father. All of that. Now we have to do something with ourselves. So it's not God's responsibility to set our, the center of our life on him. It's our responsibility to do that. Say amen. Now, you won't like this in a minute. <laughs> what he asks us to do isn't that easy. But he's saying put the center of your life all of those things that have to do with the center of your life, set those things on things above, set your heart on things above, not elsewhere. Because it's real easy to get distracted and go elsewhere. So it's a present tense call for continual action. This idea of setting your heart, it's, it's put in the present tense because in Greek... Present tense means there's a point of derivation at which there's a point that something happens and then it continues into the future. So it's a continuing action. I want you to set your heart on things above and I want you to continue to do that over time. Does that make sense? So Paul's saying it's not just do it. Not, don't just come forward on a Sunday and make a decision. I'm going to set my, my heart. I'm going to put my life and focus on things above, and then just forget about it, is something that has to happen ongoing all the time. It's a, in, in Greek, a present tense continuing is a habitual activity. So i got to do it over and over again, kind of like brushing your teeth. You have to do it. It's a habitual action that requires you to do it and do it and do it and do it. Make a habit of it is another way. If you're preaching a sermon... If Chris was preparing a sermon for Sunday morning, he wouldn't talk about all that technical stuff that I just went over. He'd probably say, look, we need to make a habit out of setting our heart on things above. That would be the expository version of it. The exegetical version, what does it mean? All the dynamics of the wording. But when you go to expository, you're just saying, what does it really mean to me? It means make a habit of setting your heart on things above and not on things below because you've already been raised with Christ. God has already done everything that he's going to do. Now it's up to you to put yourself up there. Set your heart on it. All right, let's go to the second one. Any, well, let me stop there. I get too, going too fast. So thoughts, any thoughts about that or questions before we dive into the next one? I mean, this one's pretty simple. Well, how do you do it? Well, every day, you just kind of have to think it through. You just have to continually make a habit out of setting your affection on things above. Yes. Yeah, we know it's not necessary to come to, to make a decision over and over again to accept Christ as personal Savior. You agree? That's a one-time thing. You can Now, for me, I had to do it twice because I'm a slow learner. 
I was telling Marty and Becky on Sunday, we were talking about being rebaptized. Was it your daughter? They got re-bap- Marty's daughter got rebaptized. I-, I felt like I needed to be rebaptized because I was baptized as a child, you know, as a young child. And then when I became an adult and made a decision to live for Christ, I felt like I needed to make that public, that public profession of my faith all over again. But I don't need to do that again next week or the following week or the week after that. But this is a habitual thing. This is something that I need to do on a regular basis, however often it needs to be done. Another way to preach that sermon might be to reboot. You know when you call India and you... This is a true story. I called, I called tech support for one of the universities I work with. So I called tech support and they routed me to a guy in India. His name was Mark. Actually, his name was Sabu. And so... I'm talking to Sabu, and I said, look, I need someone who speaks American English. Can you route me back to somebody that's to, to the United States or somebody who speaks English? He goes, certainly. Hold on. He put me into a lady in Mexico City. So, <laughs> and she spoke better English than he did, but it, I'm like, I never can get back to the United States. I'm afraid to ask for the next thing. I'll wind up in South America or somewhere. So it's a reboot. Reboot yourself and put your affections, your, the center of your heart, back on the things that are above because it's so easy to get pulled down into the things, that the baser things of life. So let's look at uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. Should be on the next slide, I think. Yep. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So now, the idea here is not only to put your heart on things above, but also your intellect. There needs to be an emotional change in our lives that's constantly habitual, but there's also an intellectual change. It's to think. The idea here is to think. The word minds in the NIV means to think. The way you think, your intellect. It's a present active indicative in Greek, which means it's, it's a mindset. How's that? It's a mindset. Instead of thinking a certain way, you're going to think a different way. You're going to change your mind. And so he's saying deliberately, Christians, deliberately set your mind a certain way. What kind of way? On the things above, not on the things here. Think, think about the, the eternal consequences of things. Think about what God's perspective is. A guy wrote a book years ago, years ago, talking about what would Jesus do. The guy's name was Sheldon. Is that right, Pastor Sheldon? I think that's who wrote the book. What would Jesus do? And you see people with little armbands and T-shirts and so on about that. Interesting book. What would Jesus do in this particular situation? If you haven't read the book, you need to read it. It is a good read. Theologically, there's a couple of things in there that are a little odd. 
but I think he's on the right track. What, so he was challenging people, what would Jesus do in that situation? What would he do? Because if that's what he would do, that's probably what we should do. Now, that, it sounds simple, and when you're reading the book, you're going, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But then you have to close the book and come back to reality, like go to work tomorrow with those dummies you work with, and then you've got to deal with that. Or you have customers that are unreasonable, or you have people at the airport like I do who are just, I don't know where they get these people from. And so what would Jesus do in that situation? So what Paul is saying here is how you think, set your mind on things that are above because that's where Christ is. Have the mind of Christ. So as you know, he died for you, he says, and your life is now hidden in him. Let me give you three things that you can, you can pull out of this passage right here. So your mind, set your mind, deliberately, intentionally reset your mind on things above, not just on things below. Let me give you, uh, let me say this. This is a, a fairly simple concept, but it gets us sometimes. There's, there's two ways to look at the world. There's one way to look at the world that's just purely from a physical, carnal point of view. This is what's happening in front of me. There's another way to look at the world is to look at it through Christ's eyes. Look at it through God's eyes, the way God sees the world. Lynette and I have this conversation once in a while because of family members. We have family members on both sides of our family. Some of these people look absolutely impossible to reach with the gospel. When you look at their lives, their their self-destructive behaviors, their point of view on the world, you look at them from a natural perspective, and you would say, why even bother try to talk to them about the gospel of Christ when they don't want to hear it, Their lives are such a mess. Nothing that we say to them makes any sense. So when you look at them from a human carnal perspective, you're looking at that person going, you know what, why bother? Why bother? But when you look at them through the eyes of Christ, when you look, you would look at your, what what did people think about you? (laughs) Hello? (laughs) People look at guys like me and go, good grief. That guy became a Christian. Nobody even believed it when I became a Christian. They were like, are you serious? It must be a joke. He's just joking with you. Because there ain't no way that guy's life has changed. And some of you have a similar testimony. When you gave your life to Christ, people around you that knew you really well probably thought, yeah, well, let's wait and see if there's anything that comes out of that. And so the idea of looking at things through Christ's eyes, we look at friends or family members or coworkers. If we look at them as God looks at them, we go, look at the potential in that. Look at the opportunity there for them to change because we're looking at them from God's point of view. If you look at your finances, let me tell you, you get depressed real quick if you look at your finances only from a carnal point of view. Chris talked about that on Sunday. With the idea of tithing and giving. You know, we, we haven't always been able to tithe. There's been times, let me tell you, a college professor, you don't make much money. Pastors don't make much money. And there were times when we had no money to tithe at all to God. And we had to find things, time and service and other things to be able to tithe to God. If you look at your financial situation from only a carnal perspective, it's easy to get depressed real fast. 
But if you look at it from God's perspective, he says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. If you give to me, I'll give back to you. Press down, shaking together shall men give unto you. You can't ever outgive God. True? That doesn't mean you're going to have all the you know, money in the bank that you ever want to spend just on frivolous things. It doesn't mean that. But if we look at things from a carnal point of view, we look at them one way. If we look at them through the mind of Christ, we look at a completely different way. And I think this is particularly important sometimes when we look at our finances, we look at people around us, when we look at our circumstances. It just looks like the thing's going to fall apart any moment from a carnal point of view. There was a, a couple who came. Don't come to me for counseling because I tell you, it's horrible. It's horrible. I failed all those classes. A couple came in my office one day, and they had, they had been in the office multiple times over the several years. Their marriage was a mess. They, they couldn't stop fighting all the time. Everything had to be a fight. Know anybody like this? I mean, not present company, but people out of here. That no matter what happens, there has to be an argument. So it was just a point of conflict all the time. He had to be right. She had to be right. He had to be. So, and, and there were 40, I think she was 42 and he was 40. And they just, it was constant battle back and forth. And they came to see me one day and I just had about had enough. And actually, I was having a real good day until they showed up. And I told them that. I said, you know, before you two came in here and they were doing the little badger, you know how couples do the little badgering thing, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, you know, I've just had enough. I've just had enough. I've just, I was having such a great day and then you two come in here and mess. And I just told them, I said, you know, I'm sick of it. I don't want to see your faces anymore. Don't come back here anymore. Don't come back to see me anymore. And I just told him, I said, you know what? i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you 15 minutes because I've been listening to this for, for too long now. I'm going to leave and go next door for 15 minutes. And when I come back, if this isn't resolved, don't ever come back here again for marriage counseling. I don't even want to see your faces again. You just make me sick. And I slammed the door so hard, a pitcher fell off the wall and broke on the floor. And I went next door to the pastor next door to me. And he said, what's going on over there? Is that so-and-so? And I go, yeah, they're over there fighting again. I mean, they were almost coming to physical blows in the office. I waited 15 minutes, and then I went back. They were both on their knees, holding hands, crying, you know, slobbering on each other and everything. And I told them, I said, listen. Did you get this worked out? Because you both act like children. Yes, pastor. I said, all right, here's my advice. Go get a room. You know, go, to, go get a room somewhere. Spend a few days with each other without fighting. Do you know those people go all over the country now doing, doing marriage seminars and telling people I'm a genius? <laughs> True. I kid you not. I kid you not. If you look at your marriage through carnal eyes, you're just going to get the little, you know, tit for tat. We've been married 43 years, coming up on 43 years. It's easy to get into that bad habit. Say amen. But when you look at it from a spiritual point of view, 
you can see it from a whole different thing. You begin to value that person. You begin to see that person as Christ sees them. So you don't want to do that to them. Why would you do that to Christ? You wouldn't treat him like that. Hello? I said, man, I did not come to Bible study to be talking about my marriage. I'm just telling you, it's very easy to fall into that carnal point of view than it is to get a spiritual point of view. And with that couple, I love them to death. They, they went four or five years in their marriage trying to, have a, trying to have a spiritual marriage but acting like carnal people. And all of a sudden, just because I slammed the door and yelled at them, all of a sudden their point of view changed and they started treating each other from a spiritual point of view and everything changed. That doesn't mean they have a perfect marriage. I'm sure they don't. But it changed the whole perspective. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, think about it differently. Think about it differently. See your job differently. Maybe your job is boring as dust. Maybe it's a challenge. Maybe the people you work with are difficult. But think about it differently. Think about it as if Christ would think about it. And you may start to see things differently. All right, so let's go to the next one. That's really good preaching for an old guy. Dang, we should do an offering or something. <laughs> Pastor's always ready for an offering, man. I'm telling you. It's just, you take that class in seminary on you know, being ready for an offering 24-7. All right, this is a tough one here. Um, so there's an emotional change in our lives when, we go, when we're now living in Christ. There's an intellectual change. We think about things differently, or we should. And then there's a moral change. So let's back up. Historically, Paul's writing to these Corinthians. Now, there's some Jews in there, but there's a lot of Greeks. And they're living in this Greek environment that's full of secular ideas, full of immorality. There's temples all over the place that are full of prostitutes and all kinds of debauchery that go on in those places. And so this is the environment that these people are coming out of that they're now Christians. So Paul is speaking to them in a little bit different way than he he might if he was writing to a group of just pure Jews or something. So let's read it. He says, put to death... Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of such things as these, things like anger, Rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. All right, so there's a moral change that needs to take place. Again, let me emphasize, the action to be taken is on our side. Christ has done what he's going to do. The Holy Spirit is living in us. He's doing a work in us, transforming us 
to be, his desire is for us to be like Christ. Now, what if you had his job and you're the subject? (laughs) What if you're on the potter's wheel, he's the potter and you're the clay, and he gets to make you to be like Christ? It's a challenge, isn't it? The challenge. So, because no one knows us like us. So he's trying to do this. And again, the, the action that Paul's calling for, he says, you need to put to death. In other words, have a burial. Reckon as dead. Lynette and I went to a viewing. Was it last night or night before? Night, night before. At the funeral home a family member of a friend. And there's up there in the front, like with all funerals, there's a casket and there's a body in the casket. The people are all milling around the room. Everybody's talking, visiting. But the person in the casket's not moving. Why is that? Gone. Not... I'm not trying to be disrespectful. You could poke them. You could shake them. You could do anything you want to. Nothing's going to happen. Because the spirit has departed, and the only thing there is just a shell. And Paul is saying, look, here's what you need to do with certain things, certain moral things. Put, have a funeral. Put them in the grave. Put them where they belong. These are not the way you live. This is how you used to live, yes. But now you're in a new reality. Put this away. And the action to do it is again on us. We say, well, I wish God would just take away this anger. He won't unless you're willing to bury it. Though the action is on our side. Are you saying it's easy, Dr. Chambers? No, I'm not saying it's easy. I tell you, this lady that pulled in front of me in, in Walmart gas station the other day and nearly hit my car, I tell you what, I almost sent her to be with the Lord if I'd have had my way, but no, I didn't. For one reason, Lynette was with me. And when you're married, you got the Holy Spirit, and then you got the Holy Spirit's friend on the other side. I just sit there, man. I know why in the world would you cut me off in a Walmart parking lot? Well, you can get killed in Walmart. That's all I'm going to say to you. Them people are crazy. Well, you have to put it to death. When you have to put it to death? One time, you come to the altar and you put it there one time? No, you may have to put it there a thousand times. Paul's saying it's an ongoing habitual action. If you get angry, there's fine. Get angry. Don't sin in your anger. There's places for things, but some things have to be put to bed. They have to put, be put to death. So let's look at them real quickly. I mean, they're pretty self-evident, <clears throat> but I'll give you a little bit of insight on each one as I go through them. Sexual immorality, that is just simply illicit sex. That's all it is. It's pure. Outside the context of, of a marriage relationship is illicit. And so that's what Paul's talking about. Because remember, in this culture, in this culture, you actually were encouraged, encouraged to have illicit sex. Boys from a very early age were taken by their fathers and grandfathers to these temples for illicit reasons. 
It was part of their, it's what they did. We look at it and go, that's terrible. That's horrible. It is horrible. So Paul's writing to them directly about this. He's saying, listen, you need to put that to death. Stop it. Have a burial. It's dead. Die off to it. It's no more alive. Then there's just pure impurity, which is anything. If you want a a direct translation of impurity here from Greek to English, as close as you can get, it's filthiness. Anything that's filthy, morally filthy. That makes sense? Filthy. Turn it off. Then there's lust. Lust is, in this this definition, lust is a desire that cannot be fulfilled. Though it's something that just constantly hounds you over and over. You can't, it can't be satisfied. He's saying, if you have something like that in your life, put it to death. Have a burial. Evil desires, just generally, generally speaking. And then he uses, and then he goes to greed, which is interesting, which is he says is idolatry. Greed is idolatry. When a possession of anything whether it's a person or an object, when the possession of anything takes over your life, that's greed. When, when, a, when a new position at your job, when, when you would do anything to get that position, that's greed. Are you with me? It, it could be a person, it could be a position, it could be a possession. Anything that you want to hold so close to you, it's like a worship. It's something you worship. Now, we've probably all seen, uh, the workplace is a good place for that. There are people who will do or say anything to get five cents more an hour. Say, how do you know that? I used to work at Target when I was in college. I'm going to tell you something. People, would, I just would come home and go, you know what? I saw this lady lie, cheat, and steal over this other lady to get three cents an hour or two cents an hour. That's how old I am. Those days, you know, that'd probably be $10 an hour today. Some people will do any, they want it so bad, they'll do any, they'll violate their own moral conscience, their own moral center. To get something, that's greed. Paul says, if you're not careful, greed will overtake you. You will want it. Sometimes people see physical objects, they've got to have it. They go, that's where debt comes from. Hello? You're like, I didn't come here. I'm telling you, I ain't coming back. He's already talking about all this bad stuff. Like, you don't you need to stay out of my debt. Debt'll just eat you up. No offense to the bankers in the room. I understand they got to make a living. But going into debt to have to have something, got to have that truck, got to have that car, got to have that house, got to have those clothes, got to have this, got to have that. If it's to the point where it becomes an obsession to you, it's worship. You're worshiping something more than you're worshiping God. True? So Paul's just, he's putting it down there. He's saying, look, if you 
are greedy, if you're selfish to the point of where you've got to have something where you would violate God's principles, your own moral center to have it, put that thing to death. Put it in the ground and bury it. Get that out of your life. Now, why is he saying, look, let's go back up one second. Sexual immorality. Does that have negative consequences? Does that destroy you? Illicit sex? Yes, absolutely. It will destroy your life. Impurity? Any kind of filthiness? Any kind of... Will these things have a... Do you pay a price for that? Yes, you do. Lust? When someone lusts after someone else's property, when lust after someone else's spouse, when someone lusts after someone else's job... Is there a price to be paid for that? Absolutely. Yeah, because lust has to do with the physical side of things where greed could be just, I want it. You know, it's just an emotional thing. It doesn't have to be sexual or otherwise. What's Paul saying? He's saying God does not want his children to suffer the consequences of these things. It's the bottom line. That's the expository side of it. He's saying, look, all of these things in the right context are fine, but if if they're in the wrong context, you have to pay a price for that, and God doesn't want you to pay that price. So then he goes on. He said, you used to, this is how you used to be. This is how you used to be. You used to be angry. You'd have rage about things. You had malice in your heart. You would slander other people. You had filthy language. He's saying, don't, don't do that anymore. Don't do it. Just put those things to death. That's not the world you live in anymore. So put those things. Say, well, I'm still struggling with some of these things. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. Everybody struggles with different things. But those things need to be put away. They don't need to control our lives. They need to be... And so on and so on. So... And then when he gets to the bottom, he says, there's no Gentile, no Jew, no uncircumcised, circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. He's basically just saying this. It, it doesn't make any difference. Your, your color of your skin, your financial position in life, your, your titles, your house you live in, none of any of that makes any difference when you stand before God. Everybody's the same. Everybody struggles with different things. The day you walk into this church and look around and think, you know what, I'm not as good as those other people, that's the day Satan has just deceived you. You have no idea what the person sitting on the other aisle is dealing with. You have no idea. They might look fine on the outside. They look just fine. But you don't know what they're dealing with in their family, in their home, in their job, Physically, how do you know? You don't. Paul's saying it doesn't matter. All of us are the same in God's eyes. All right, we're going to run out of time. Let me do 3, 12 through 14 real quick. <clears throat> Wish we had more time, we could just talk about it. But there's a spiritual change that occurs. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, loved by who? By God. Clothe yourselves with compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I'm good with all of those except the last one. <laughs> I'm in trouble with the last one. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. That one gets me from time to time too. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That could have, I'm not sure that should be in the Bible, actually. If you're going to take a scripture out, that might be one to let go. Forgive in the same way, the same measure that God forgives you. How does he forgive you? Does he go, okay, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm going to hold like 10% back. You know, I'm going to, in case you mess up, I'm going to keep this little bit over here. That's what you call the aha moment. You know, when you do something, God goes, aha, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together. Here's just a couple of thoughts because I want to get to the last passage. All right, so the compassion, put on compassion. So he's, he's basically saying because you're God's, children's, you need to, God's children, you need to dress differently. So he's going to use an analogy. He's going to say, put it on like a coat. Put on your coat. Put on your clothes. Put your clothes on, and the way you dress yourself as a Christian is with compassion, which is an, which is an interesting word. It's an attitude on one side, and it's an action on the other side. So the word Paul uses for compassion here, it's not just an attitude of being compassionate. It's, I'm compassionate, and I'm going to do something about it. So I'm going to have compassion on somebody who's in need, but I'm going to get in my wallet and take care of it at the same time. So you can't separate the two. If you're a compassionate person, you will act compassionately. And then he says kindness, which is an attitude again, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Then he elaborates on patience. Bear with one another. What does patience look like? Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Of course you have grievances against people. You cannot live around people without bumping into each other. True? Of course you do. Of course you're going to have to practice being a forgiving person. If you go through your whole life... No one's going to offend you. You might as well move into a bubble someplace because we're always bumping into each other. We're always going to do things that are going to offend each other. That's why it's so important to have an, an attitude, a cloak on that says, I'm a person who just walks in forgiveness. Because if you don't walk in forgiveness, you're just going to be miserable. How many of you are from a big family? See, Lynette and I, she has uh, five sisters, and she had two brothers. One of them's passed, and I have five sisters and two brothers. If you ever need to talk to somebody about being offended, you just come and see me. I'm telling you, I got the five evil sister-in-laws. I got the five evil sisters. You know, they're all trying to tell me what's wrong with me. And so it's easy to get offended if you want to be offended. But we need to live in forgiveness. Now, let me get to this last passage. 
and we'll stop for tonight. There's going to be a behavioral change if we're living in Christ, in Christos. We're living in Christ, not living in our old life. This is a really cool passage. This is just an awesome, I don't know what to say. Let me drop a few thoughts on you before we pray. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And underline rule in your hearts if it's not, or mark it. Since as members of one body, you are called to peace. Whose body are we members of? Christ's body. So we're called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, just for the sake of time, I'm just going to show you two things that occur here. The first one is the word for rules in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Paul does something here. He does this several times. He does it in Romans. He does it... Here he does it in Ephesians, he does it in Philippians. It's really an interesting thing. Paul takes a word from another area of culture and he brings it over and turns it into a spiritual point. The word here is umpire. The Greeks loved games. That's where we get the idea of the Olympics from. So Paul takes a word that, that is, it's really in English, it's the best word we have for it is it's an umpire, but it's a certain kind of umpire in, in Greek uh, thinking at that time. So an umpire, there's two of them, there's two guys, and they're going to stand across from each other like this. They didn't have electronic wires to tell who wins the race. So in a race, there's two umpires, and they're going to stand just opposite of each other, and we're going to have a race, whether it's a foot race or a chariot race or a horse race or whatever it is. And these two guys are going to stand eye to eye across here. And we're going to look at each other and we're going to watch who crosses the line first. When I think of an umpire, I think of the baseball game. Because Lynette and I love to go to baseball. So, you know, it's the guy who says safe or out. But in their minds, it's, it's these two guys that are standing there and they're eyeball to eyeball. And they watch who comes by first. So here's what Paul says. Look, let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your life. So what does that mean? If you don't feel the peace of Christ, don't do it. If you can't get the sense of Christ's peace in a decision, don't make it. Are you following me? Let, let the peace of Christ call the shot. Let, let the peace of Christ in your heart tell you whether that's the way to go or that's not the way to go. There was a house that came up for sale in Cherokee Village a few months ago on one of the lakes. Lynette and I went over there eight times. The poor realtor, bless his heart, he didn't have much hair when it began and he probably had no hair when he got done with us. We would walk around that house and look at it. We'd look at the beautiful lake view. We'd stand there. We prayed over it. We went on the back deck. We prayed several times. We'd go back and walk around again. 
We'd, we'd go back again. We'd look at it again. We went eight times. A couple times we just pulled up in the driveway and just prayed. Lord, is this a good place for us to live? Would this be a good place? Not one time I could get the peace of God in my heart. I couldn't get it. It just wasn't there. The price was amazing. It was going to foreclosure. And the realtor kept saying to us, are you people out of your mind? <laughs> Excuse me. Are you kidding me? You couldn't even build part of this house for what you're going to buy it for. You need to buy this house. But I could not in my spirit get peace. Have you ever had an experience like that where you, you want to make a decision, you want to do something, but the Spirit of God is just saying, you know what? No. Everything on the surface looks wonderful, but down deep inside you, there's no peace. Paul is saying, let the peace of Jesus Christ be the umpire for your decisions. Now, one last thing. He says, verse 16, let the message of Christ, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's kind of awkward in English. You've got to flip it around to get it right in, in, in Greek. He's saying, let the word of God, let the words of Scripture, let the thoughts of God take up residence in your heart, in your life. In other words, move this into the living room of your life. Let this be dwelling in you. You get that old picture, you know, of the family Bible on the, on the coffee table with the eyes of Jesus watching you. I have one of Pastor Chris. He's just watching. Not a bad image, you know, when you think about it. A big picture of Jesus just looking at you, you know. Watching what you watch on TV, watching what you say, watching how you treat each other. Kind of an odd image. He's like, wow, is God like that? Not really. But he's saying, let the word of God, let the thoughts of God, let how God sees the world, how he thinks about you, let God's thoughts be living inside you. Go live in that place because that's a good, healthy place to live. All right. As we pray, let me leave you with something for this week. Who God thinks you are, how God sees you, is more important than how you see yourself because it's very easy for us to have a distorted view of who we are. Because we see our weaknesses, we see our shortcomings, we see all the things that are about us. Does that make sense? But if we see ourselves as God sees us, we're going to be able to live healthy, productive lives. God sees us forgiven, that's how we need to be See, That's how we need to see others. God sees us as valuable, that's how we need to see ourselves. A lot of people struggle with that idea of how they see themselves. Let's pray together. Father, we just come to you tonight. Thank you for letting us dive into this passage a little deeper and kind of get inside the mind of Paul and see what he's thinking about. He's really saying to us, you used to live a certain way. Don't live that way anymore. Move out of there and move in to Christ. 
and to let your heart and your mind and your thoughts and your behaviors and your morality and all of those things be governed by the Spirit of Christ, by the Holy Spirit. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, tonight to come and dwell in us. We are not what we ought to be. We're not where we ought to be in all of these things. But with your help, we'll make progress. And we thank you for that. We praise you for that in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Pastor?